Welcome everyone to KSQD Santa Cruz at 90.7 FM. I'm Jacob Sheckman and you're listening to our show, What To Be, where we interview inspiring people and highlight their careers. What To Be is a program provided by Your Future Is Our Business, a Santa Cruz County nonprofit dedicated to helping students explore careers through programs such as college and career expos, career panels, and other work-based learning activities. Please note the views and opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily represent or reflect those of Natural Bridges Media or Your Futures Our Business. The information provided during this program does not reflect this career in its entirety. We also just wanted to let you know that for the time being we're hosting interviews through video call and we would like to apologize in advance for any lack in audio quality. Alright, and today uh, I am excited to be joined by uh, my friend Dr. Erica Pasquini. Thanks for being here, Erica. Yeah, of course. Uh, Erica is here to talk to us today about her career and current job as the assistant professor in kinesiology at Sam Houston State University. All right. Where is Sam Houston State and what does it mean to be a kinesiology professor? Sure. We are a kind of middle of the ground in terms of size public university in Huntsville, Texas, which is about like an hour-ish north of Houston. And I am a professor in the kinesiology department. We are located in the College of Health Sciences. And in our college, there's nursing, there's public health. There are a couple other departments, but I'm in kinesiology. And so we have uh, clinical exercise science majors, athletic training, sport management, kind of a range of different health sciences, as well as students who are just interested in things like coaching or sports psychology, which is where my area of expertise is. So can you break down what kinesiology is a little bit more and tell us about what you said you're focusing on sports psychology? What does it mean to to focus on sports psychology within kinesiology? Sure. So kinesiology is kind of like a wide umbrella for a range of different sports medicine and sports science degrees. Um, Like I said, we have sport management. We have a dual minor with a sports media program. We have athletic training. We have students who want to be physical therapists. So they're pre-PT occupational therapists, um, people who want to just go be physical trainers, lots of different things like that as far as undergraduate goes. I study kind of the more psychological side of sports science. So I got my master's degree in sport and exercise psychology and my undergraduate degree in psychology. So early on, I had a much more focus on psych. And then I got my PhD in sport pedagogy, which is a really fancy way of saying coaching education. So we have PE, physical education, teacher education. And then we also have kind of a shifting focus to the formalization of education for coaches in the United States. What does that mean? You know, how many jobs are out there that it's like anyone can do it, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you want to be a teacher, you have to have a degree in teaching. If you want to be an accountant, you have to have a degree in accounting. And people were just kind of going into coaching with no background of motor learning, motor behavior, age-appropriate practices. It's like, oh, well, I played this sport, therefore I can coach this sport. And the idea of that being enough is kind of shifting to people should be educated around these age-appropriate practices where youth are in terms of development, have some sort of 
physical kinesiology background to be a kind of certified or educated coach. Is that what you're focusing on now also within your sports psychology studies? There are people who focus on really the the mental training of athletes in terms of mental toughness and imagery and goal setting. And I like that stuff and I'm interested in it. But whenever I was getting my degree, I really started focusing on kind of the relationship and the interdependence of the relationship between coach and athlete. Mm -hmm. And that's really what I found important. And because I had that focus for my master's degree, my master's mentor, who I really love, a great friend of mine now and still a mentor, suggested I look into sport pedagogy and really shift my focus into coaching and coaching education and how to make coaches better, therefore make kind of sport as a whole, specifically my focus is in youth sport better. Yeah, awesome. I want to back pocket your current studies and work our way there because I'm curious to know more about your own personal background in, in education and what you started. I know in some of the notes that you wrote to us, you had you said you even had thought about being a psychologist for the clinically insane. Criminally, yeah, I want criminally. to be criminally. Oh, excuse me. Okay, for the criminally yeah. insane. Uh, wow. Um, I love true crime. But. <laughs> so I, I want to know what was the path that before that even led you up to that? Like, what what were you when you were a kid when you were in high school or something? Did you already know that you kind of liked the realm of psychology? Yeah. So my parents got divorced when I was younger. And I was just always interested in kind of like what makes people tick and why people act or behave or kind of have the belief systems that they do. And so I was always really interested in sociology and psychology. And my high school offered a AP psych course and our professor teacher at the time, she was a licensed psychologist who was just teaching this one course at the high schools. And I was really interested in it. And it's funny, one of my best friend's dad, when I was 13, I said, I'm going to be a psychologist. And so he's been calling me Dr. Pasquini since I was a kid. (laughs) And then when I actually got my PhD, he was like, oh my gosh, this is so funny. So I, I knew I wanted to go into psychology. And um, where I went to college, I was a swimmer. And so I got a scholarship to swim in college and wanted to major in psychology. And throughout college, I was a student athlete, but I was still a psych major and took all my psych classes and thought that I wanted to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist for criminally insane because I just found that just really fascinating, like what what makes these people kind of go against the grain and not follow social structures and norms, et cetera. So after college, I worked at a privately owned psychiatric institute in New Orleans and frankly, just kind of jaded me. It wasn't what I thought. We weren't helping or um, trying to understand our patients. It was really like, give them drugs, maintain and push them back out into society. Mm-hmm. And it was like kind of just really depressing and wasn't fulfilling for me. And I was coaching at the time. So I was like, could, what different kind of thing avenue could I go down? 
And I don't know how no one ever suggested sport psychology to me because it kind of makes sense for me as a person. And I just started researching. I found sports psychology and I was like, I think I would really like this. And so that's how I ended up going down that realm. Instead, I actually got attacked by a patient and was put in the hospital. And at that point, I was like, well, I don't think this is for me. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's terrifying. Yeah, I think I'm going to go into something else. And so I actually looked into industrial organizational psychology and sports psychology and found um, actually just a book that had a list of all the different programs and started looking them up and applying to some and ended up at Ball State where I got my master's in sports psychology. Okay, so you went it went from your your undergraduate to working in the in a psych ward. And Mm -hmm. from there, you went and got your master's. Yeah, so I took about I graduated in the fall in the fall because mm-hmm. um, my freshman year of college was Hurricane Katrina. Oh my gosh! So yeah, so I moved to college. Two weeks later, Katrina hit New Orleans, and we were displaced. And so college was kind of crazy for me, aside from crazy college stuff. But Katrina, I lived in New Orleans through that, and so I took four and a half years, which isn't unheard of. But then I was coaching and working at the psych hospital. So I was about a year and a half mm-hmm. off instead of a full kind of two years off of school mm-hmm. until I went back and started grad school and my master's. I want to talk about some of your uh, your coaching experiences. You coached, okay. um, was it almost entirely uh, in swimming since you were a swimmer? Yeah, I coached okay. in, when I was in college, I would coach just like summer league teams over mm-hmm. the summers. And then I would teach swim lessons. So I've taught anywhere from a six-month-old to a 42-year-old man how to swim. So I was teaching teaching swim lessons and coaching. And then after I graduated, I got a job at a full-time club swim team that was year-round swimming. So I coached um, primarily like eight to 13 year olds pre-maturation, which is where the highest rate of dropout is in sport, which probably is what informed my later studies and interest in new sport as well. Yeah. How, how, what were some of the direct impacts of your coaching experiences on your actual studies? I, I can see how, how it led you to, to go into those studies, but while you were a student at, at Southern Miss studying for your, for your PhD, can you describe any time that you, you had to reflect back to your own experiences, right? And how, how that affected your actual studies. Well, good and bad, right? Like I was an athlete my whole life and I was a year round swimmer, a very competitive swimmer. And I had some really great coaches and I had some really bad coaches. And when I look back on my sporting experience, that's what I remembered most, right? Like I remembered some of my great swims and some of my good times But mostly I remembered how my coaches treated me and how they made me feel and how that impacted my sport experience. And so then I became a coach, you know, and I was always uh, really concerned with how the relationships I was forming with my athletes and um, trying to remain unbiased in those relationships. But as a human being, you know, it's really hard the expectations I had of my athletes as human beings, not just as athletes, Mm -hmm. right. That they're, they're around me a lot and you're kind of molding a lot of how they treat each other, how they treat their teammates, you know, those kinds of expectations. 
but I mean, I had, I definitely had times where I look back and I'm like, oh gosh, you shouldn't have, <laughs> shouldn't have yelled at that kid like that. <laughs> but it happens. And I think that my bigger thing was trying to teach everybody. And so I've done a lot of studies in golf and soccer. What does um, that look like? Like baseball. that's your, that's your data acquisition, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what does that look like when you go out there and you watch these coaches do, do what they're doing? Yeah. So I videotape and then I watch back the videotapes mm-hmm. and my primary kind of research is focusing on what's called the coach expectancy cycle. And it's like self-fulfilling prophecy theory, essentially that as individuals, we form unconscious biases based off of how people look, if we know them, like if they had an older sibling that was really good at sport, we might have a higher expectation that the younger sibling will also be good at sport, right? And so we form these kind of unconscious biases and then those biases impact our behaviors Mm -hmm. and then our behaviors impact athlete satisfaction and performance and motivation. And then that performance and motivation kind of reinforces our initial expectations. And it's this recurring cycle of behavior that we never reflect and change our own opinions of talent or expectation. So I really focus on that second area of how our biases impact our behavior and then what we can do to kind of inform ourselves and self-reflect and change that behavior. So I actually just have them list like who they say is worst to best on their team. And then I monitor the behavior of the top one third and bottom one third of, of their team. Then I just really count frequency of corrective instruction, general feedback and encouragement. And what I find is that the bottom one third of children are being virtually ignored. And then the top one third are getting all this encouragement instruction. And then you go to a coach and you're like, well, of course these kids aren't learning or getting better because you're, you're not investing your time in them the same way you're investing your time. So that was like my PhD doctoral study and um, obviously I've kind of expanded since I started my job, but uh-huh. that was what got me interested in this area. And it's what I spend a lot of time teaching about as well. For those who are just tuning in, you're listening to What to Be at KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz. I'm Jacob Sheckman, and today we're speaking with Dr. Erica Pasquini and learning about her career journey to becoming an assistant professor in kinesiology at Sam Houston State University. Okay, what does it... It's interesting. I've talked to a couple people in the sciences after they've gone into industry, and you're, I think, the first person in academia really that I've especially so fresh that I've been able to talk to so can't what is that what is it like now to continue being a research psychologist in academia now as an assistant professor I think what a lot of people don't kind of understand about academia even when you've gotten your master's degree and you kind of get to know your professors a little bit more than you do as an undergrad there's a lot more to the job than what people think there is to the job tell me tell me what you feel people that's a common a question we usually ask what's a misconception like what do people normally think you do and then what do you actually do Right. Like even my dad's like, so you teach three hours twice a week. And I'm like, 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like that. Yes, that is. And so I think most people just think about professors and think, so they have to teach and they have to grade and that's it. Right. And that's actually kind of a, a smaller part of my job. So if my job is a hundred percent, right? Like if I get evaluated out of a hundred percent of my job, 40% is teaching. So I teach three classes a semester. Generally, we like to kind of do the same ones that we can update them and kind of make them as, as good as we can. And then the other 40% is research responsibilities. So I have to develop my research. I have to conduct and analyze my data and then I have to publish, right? Um, And then the other 20% is service to university, which I think is really the blind spot. And then people who have gone maybe and gotten graduate degrees or especially advanced degrees, like a doctoral degree, they understand that there's that research aspect. But my current students probably would not really understand that I do that, right? Mm -hmm. Like all, all these cited articles we're forcing them to read in classes they're written by people like me (laughs) who we're then forcing you to to you know they don't understand all that goes into that they just think that I'm a teacher Mm -hmm. right and so I'm teaching I'm grading and that takes up a lot of time especially if you want to do it well and then I'm conducting research which obviously takes up a lot of time universities really run on the service that faculty and staff provides to them. So I'm on committees across campus that have regular meetings. Um, The faculty are the people who run the search committees when we're hiring people. So I've been on plenty of search committees. I never thought I'd be on the other end of hiring someone, but here I am right now. I'm I'm in the middle actually of chairing a search committee. Um, And then all the other kind of things that make the university tick we we are a part of like faculty senate and things like that so how how big is your university i want to say we're around like 20 24,000 undergrads uh-huh so like i said we're kind of a mid-level public university we're a teaching university so so we're not an r1 like a bigger university might be that has a lot more emphasis on research so that's why i teach three classes a semester versus a faculty member at somewhere like the University of Texas might only teach one class a semester Mm -hmm. because their research expectations are more heavily a percent of that 100% than mine would. Right. You you don't have to worry just as much about it. What is is the next five five to 10 years look like for you as as a research scientist? So I am in a 10-year track faculty line, which I think is another misconception. When you say 10-year, people think like 10 years, not (laughs) tenure, T-N-U-R-E, which means that I am evaluated yearly for my job. And after six years, I get voted on by by a committee of my peers who either give me tenure or don't give me tenure. So this this year was my fourth year. So I have in two more years, I will I will have to turn in my tenure packet and be evaluated and, you know, knock on whatever you possibly can that I receive that and keep my job at my university. Um, if not, then I would have to start looking for other jobs at other universities or whatever I want to do. Mm-hmm. So two years will hopefully be tenure. And then after that, you know, you just keep on doing your research agenda and teaching classes. And then if you want to go into administration, there's always that route of chair or associate dean or 
Dean or, you know, wherever that kind of track would take you. Yeah. So there, there are many paths still ahead of you available. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I want to know now, um, you have put yourself and you've been on a path that's not easy. This is, you, you had to go to grad school, you got a PhD. Now you're on tenure track and all of those from my perspective are, are stressful, right? But rewarding at the end, but, but stressful. So I, a, a somewhat of a two-part question, I think. I want to know where, where, where did your resilience come from to put yourselves through the typical stresses of, of grad school and tenure track, tenure track come from? Uh, and also at being a, a woman in science, right? It yeah. doesn't, doesn't make it easier. So what helped you build the resilience to be a typical grad student and to be a woman, in, a successful woman in science? In terms of resiliency, I think obviously my my family, uh, my grandfather, who unfortunately passed away last year, was a really big mentor and a good friend of mine. And he was in education. He was a high school principal, and he really valued education and um, kind of always had that gritty, no quit type of <laughs> attitude. I'm gonna yell at my dogs. Hold on. I'm gonna be- <laughs> okay. sorry and so that definitely was a a big influence in my life and I I had this goal of going to grad school mostly because I I wanted to be an educator I knew I wanted to go into academia and get my PhD and I actually think that swimming in college and living through Katrina and really persevering through that taught me a lot about myself and what I can handle and that first year of I mean, I mean, first few years of college and and watching New Orleans rebuild and being a part of that really taught me a lot. Um, and there was definitely times in that part of my life where I was like, I can quit and go home and not even deal with this. And I somehow always found that kind of, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stick it out. And so that was always instilled in me really early on. And then I learned those lessons, I think, in college. So that kind of continued through grad school, I think. And not only being a woman in science for sure, but I'm a woman in science around sport. And yeah. <laughs> sport is, uh, you know, very heavily male focused. And I, I, I was fortunate to have two really great female mentors um, for my master's degree. Dr. Lindsay Blom was my mentor, and I was the only female in my class, actually, for my master's um, class. And there was, I believe, six of us, I want to say, and I was the only female, and there was five men um, there for sports psychology. And she was like, I remember a time we were in um, our seminar class and we were talking about the athletes we were working with. And there was one of the guys and he was working with the women's tennis team. And he was like, kept referring to them as girls. And he was like, oh, you know, they're just being catty. Girls are going to be like that. And she very swiftly and sternly, but still in an educational tone, kind of came in and said, they're women just like you'd say the men sent their women and their athletes, and we're going to treat them with the same respect. And so having that kind of mentor. And then when I was getting my PhD, um, at another really great female mentor. So I think that helped a lot that I got to see myself 
in those positions that I want to do and not everyone gets to see that. And I was really lucky. And my PhD advisor and mentor, she was really great in the same way that when I was applying for jobs, I I had a lot of that imposter syndrome. Like I am not qualified to go be in a tenure track position. What am I even doing applying for these jobs? And she was like, yes, you are, you know? And when I got my job, I, I kept saying, um, how lucky I was. And she was like, this is not luck. You worked hard and you need to own that. And so I really had just really good mentors who also helped instill that in me to say, no, you deserve to be where you are. And it's not easy. You know, I mean, there are times I'm, I'm lucky to have a lot of other females in my department, but I mean, sometimes in my classes, you know, I'm teaching a class about sports And one of my students this past semester, he was doing a presentation about gambling in fantasy football. And it was, it was, it was poor research. It wasn't good. It wasn't going to be great. And I I said, I don't, you know, I had some questions for him at the end and he was like, well, do you even know what fantasy football is? I was like, I, I do. Yeah. I have, I have my own team. He was like, oh, well, does your husband run it for you? And I was like, no. You know, like, the, and it's it's those things that it's still because I'm a woman in sport and sports science specifically. And so instead of looking at it as, um, I think, a fight, I look at it as a privilege of that I can educate you and say, no, we're, we're not going to we're not going to think like that. We're not going to talk like that about people. And again, have those kind of unconscious biases. He's a great kid. He didn't mean to be offensive. Mm-hmm. And then when I said that was really offensive, if I was a male professor, would you have spoken to me like that? And he, uh, you know, I'm so sorry. I mean, he was very apologetic, but we as a society have obviously a lot of unconscious biases and this is just one of them and so I get to be in a position to try to help educate people and hopefully lead by example as much as possible. I love that perspective that's wonderful. Do you on that note then have um, have any advice for young women young girls who haven't yet had that that female mentor Maybe they don't know if they want to go into sports psychology or anything yet, but they're they're in sport, they're in a male-dominated area. Do you have any advice for these young ladies to keep pushing? I, what, what would you want to say to them if they haven't had this mentor yet? Although it might be hard to see ourselves in other people, we can always find uh, mentors, even even if they might not look exactly like us. And if we have to look harder, it might, it might be harder. Like females who want to be coaches, Um, You know, how normal is it for a man to be coaching a female sport, but for some reason, there's not females high up coaching female sports, and there are very few females high up coaching male sports. Mm -hmm. So I think you want to make yourself the norm, right? You want to make yourself the norm instead of being that special case. And so really thinking about it like that, like I can find these special cases out there, but I don't want it to be a special thing that I'm a female coach or a woman in science or a woman in sport. I want that to be the norm. So I'm going to make myself that person for other people, right? Until this does become the norm. Even if you are intimidated, it's like one of those old coaching sayings, like, don't let them see, don't let them see you cry or whatever, (laughs) like um, that you, you have to show that, you know, your stuff. 
um, that you're educated. And if, if you aren't educated, it's okay. Ask questions, research, you know, that's something that you learn in, in grad school, but in life in general, just because, you know, we all have this, we all have our phone, we all have Google, but don't, don't just look at the first thing, look at 50 things and really educate yourself about um, different things that are out there. There are tons of great programs for women who want to be in science, who want to be in sports science. There, there's lots out there. You just might have to look harder to find it. So don't get discouraged easily. And when someone does treat you, maybe be that you are a little bit less than or condescending, it's, it's going to happen, but it happens to everybody. And just show them that they're wrong, you know, I mean, that you do know what you're talking about, and that you can succeed. And just because things are hard, it doesn't mean that they'll, that they're always going to be hard or that they're not going to be worth it. That was uh, wonderful. I hope that your words can help someone like I've said, they've already helped me. Seriously, that was really great. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Erica. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you having me. Yeah, my pleasure. (laughs) And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's career story. I'm Jacob Sheckman, and this is our show, What to Be, with today's guest, Dr. Erica Pasquini, assistant professor in kinesiology at Sam Houston State University. If you have any questions or would like to share your career story with us, send us an email at whattoberadio at gmail.com. If you enjoyed our show, please join us again at 90.7 FM K-Squid Santa Cruz at 7 p.m. on Sundays. Stream online at ksqd.org or visit our website, yfiob.org, for more ways to listen. Thank you and see you next time.